Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Well, that is my message today. Like, literally, that's it. So you guys can go. You wish. There are some of you, and I actually know a few of you in here that are like, oh my gosh, he's not going to talk that long. This is awesome. Hashtag fooled you. It's going to be twice as long. Suckers. It's not really. It'll be, it'll be timely, I promise. Um, this morning, I really wanted to start us off with Philippians 2 because I just really think that it's a message that we all need to hear. Um, we're continuing our series called Instimacy, and I want to make sure everyone knows we're not trying to like dump on social media. There's actually a lot of great things that have come in the social media age. We just want to be aware and recognize the fact that with the rise of social media, we've also seen a rise in divisiveness and loneliness. Um, I think that all of us, whether you believe in Jesus or follow Jesus or not, we crave authentic and true friendships. We want to have people in our lives that are for us, not against us, that will show us love and grace and speak truth into our lives. And Scripture actually has a lot to say about this. It has a lot to say about fostering that type of community and fostering those types of relationships in the spheres of our friendships, our work relationships, church, and all of those things. So I want us to be able to take a look today at what it would appear to be for us to actually have a foundation of humility, of what it would be like if we were to get rid of all the filters that we put in front of ourselves um, and let people see us for who we actually are, of what it would be like if we lived at the intersection of truth and grace. And to start that, I want us to understand this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's so powerful, those two verses, especially in the culture in which we live today. We live in a time when most of the messages we hear are, whatever makes you happy is the most important thing. Doesn't matter how it affects your family, your friends, your community, your church, as long as you're happy... That's all that matters. Here's you, here's the world. That's what we hear. And then we end up acting in ways that are kind of embarrassing. We've gotten to this place now where we feel like it's our duty to share our grievances to anyone that will listen. We'll put them on Facebook or Instagram or any kind of social media because there's this rush that comes with knowing that all eyes are on us and our voice is being heard. We like have a high when we feel vindicated and are proven right and someone else is proven wrong. We take time to curate an image of ourselves to make sure that people see us the way that we want them to see us. We hold on to anger as if it were a treasure. My precious. We nurture it like a hairless cat. And we pull it out when we want to exert force over the people that have harmed us, even if those people have sought forgiveness and reconciliation. We tell ourselves that we don't need anybody else, that we could do it on our own. But we wonder why so many people are lonely. We wonder why so many of us are lonely. We wonder why so many people will jump from friend to friend or friend group to friend group or church to church or even family to family. I'm, I'm going to tell you why. It's because our culture tells us that we're the most important thing. 
And it's not true. And that's really hard for us to hear. This guy, Paul, who once helped kill Christians until he himself became a Christ follower, is writing these two verses to a church in the city of Philippi. And Paul, at this point in his life, has experienced all kinds of stuff. He's experienced joys and sorrows. He's experienced um, heartache and hardships that we couldn't even imagine. And he's seen the church in Philippi begin to become really divided over things. And it's not just because they're in disagreement about certain things. Disagreements are natural. We're human. We're going to disagree with each other. But it's how they are disagreeing that is causing the concern. Because what Paul sees is that the culture is dictating to the church and to people who are claiming to follow Christ how they should treat each other, how they should treat the church, and how they should treat their community. And it's caused some problems. So Paul writes in Philippians, starting in verse 1, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. In the original language, it literally translates to set your minds on the same thing. It's this idea that if we can collectively focus our hearts, souls, and minds on that one thing and not be distracted by all the other stuff, we get to experience a completely purposeful and fulfilled life. We get to experience relationships and friendships the way that they are meant to be experienced. And that one thing is Christ and the thing that he teaches us. Paul goes on, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, <clears throat> excuse me, in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now ask yourself, how different would your friendships be? How different would your marriages be? your families be, our church be, our community be, if we actually lived that way. If we lived in such a way that we weren't solely focused on ourselves, but we were actually also focused on the needs of others. Humility is hard. Because when humility shows up, our pride wants to fight, and our pride will not die without a fight. It will go to war, and it is hard, and it is painful. But humility has the ability to change not only our perspective, but to change our entire environments. Humility is a uniquely Christian virtue. There are a lot of other groups that have adopted this idea, but it truly is a, a unique Christian virtue. And at the time of the Greco-Roman world when Paul is writing this, and really today in the Western world, humility is not looked at as a virtue. It's looked at as a shortcoming, <clears throat> as a weakness. And I want to be clear as we talk about humility of a few things, because it's really easy to read between lines and, and, and kind of hear things that maybe aren't being said or actually being taught. Um, the first thing is, we're going to talk about pain a little bit this morning, and I want you to know, um, humility does not say that your pain doesn't matter. Humility doesn't say that your pain isn't valid. Um, humility doesn't say that, uh, that, 
that you don't matter in any way, shape, or form. That, that's not what humility is. Humility is not a false sense of modesty. A lot of us know people, or maybe we're like this at times, you know, you might be gifted at something. Maybe it's like a sport. Maybe you're 6'10", and you could dunk like nobody's business. Maybe you're really good at empathizing with people, and someone recognizes that in you, and they tell you that, and you're like, oh, no, it's no. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. And one of two things is happening. Either one, you don't recognize your own giftedness, or two, you do recognize it, and you're kind of like, can you give me some more compliments, please? <laughs> That's not humility either. Humility is also not this idea of self-loathing, thinking that you're the worst person in the world, that you have no value. That's not what humility is. Humility is having a correct opinion of yourself. It's having a solid view of yourself. It's understanding that you have a history, that you have strengths, that you have struggles, that you have wisdom. It's understanding that you're human and you're going to make mistakes, but that there is also a creator of the world who loves you and is willing to offer you grace. It's understanding that you're never as worthless as you think, and you're also never as awesome as you think. It's having healthy boundaries, and it's leaning in to communities that will challenge and encourage you to rest in humility. These verses are easy to get confused and to think that it is saying that everyone is better than you, and you have to intentionally lower yourself so much that it doesn't matter. It's not saying that. It's not saying that people should walk all over you. It's not saying that you should be abused in any way. That's not what this is saying. These verses are pointing us in a very solid direction to intentionally and prayerfully try and see people and ourselves the same way that Christ sees us. Simply as people that are not that different from each other, that are all sinners and all in need of grace. Humility is the answer to selfish ambition and vain conceit. And if we in our relational spheres, what Chris was talking about last week, if in our relational spheres we are acting with this foundation of humility, our needs get met. Because as we take the form of a servant to love those around us, we also have people doing that for us. That's one of the ways we as individuals are able to show the love of Christ and how we as a church are able to show that we are the church. Now, I get that I kind of came out of the gates really quick this morning. So let's take a breather, stretch, maybe take a sip of coffee, relax a little bit, and talk about something else that's equally as important, my Instagram account. I have currently 2,472 posts, which isn't a lot compared to some people, but we're not supposed to compare each other, so stop comparing me right now. Of these posts, I'd say about 85% of them are like food or travel pictures. I am that guy at a restaurant that's going, you know, over my meal. I, I know it's annoying. I do it. Uh, we have a new rule in our house that if the family is in the picture, they have to approve uh, before it gets posted, not to make sure we look okay, but simply to make sure that they're okay with it in general. And I know that there's probably some psychological or sociological reason of my insecurities as a child or something that leads into why I post what I post, and that's a whole different bag of things that we need to work through. Um, but I really think that the reason I share what I share on social media is because I have lived in so many different places and I have friends and family scattered throughout the country that in my brain, when I share those things, it makes me feel like they're a part of it, you know? Um, and it's the same thing. Like, my friends that live in Nashville or New Orleans or out in California, when they post things of restaurants, families, vacations, I don't, like, hate like them. I legitimately feel like I am somehow 
a part of that. But I've realized over the years that there are things that irritate me and that tick me off, um, either about my own posts or other people's posts. And it's usually when I know that something is super fake. You know, you know those posts. You know the posts that you've posted that are that way, right? Last week, case in point, Leanne and I um, and two of our friends went to New York, and we were staying in Brooklyn. And I'm on the street, and I'm waiting for them to come down from the apartment. And this girl wearing this lovely dress and this big, like, overstuffed cardigan walks near me to this brick wall. And she begins to do the angle thing. You know what I mean? She pulls out her phone, and she begins to do the... Like, I need to find the right angle. So she, she locks in the angle, and she's doing this. Her phone is slightly askew, and she's jutting out one way, and she's, she's got her shoulder, and then she's like, like, I don't know, like concaving herself, and she tilts her head, and then she does the smize. You know what smize is? Smile with your eyes, Tyra Banks, you know what? America's Next Top Model? Is that still a thing? Okay, so she smize, and then of course she does the duck lips, so she's like, and I'm standing there like, what is happening? I'm lit- you guys, I'm literally two feet away from her. I could reach out, touch her phone. She pays me no attention. I see the picture she takes. She does the filter. It's a lovely picture. But for me, from my vantage point, she looks like a weird Cirque du Soleil actress that I'm like, what are you doing? But that's not what we let people see. People don't see what's behind the picture, right? They just see what we present. So this is a safe place. We're going to bond at my expense, and I'm okay with it. I want to share with you some of my selfies that I've taken over the years. No judgment. There's no cameras or recordings in this place. All right, let's throw up the first one. I have no idea what I'm looking at. I know exactly where I'm at. I'm in Washington, D.C. at a sandwich shop. My wife and her brother were talking. Bella was sitting eating her sandwich, and I'm sitting there going, I like those bucket lights. I'm going to take pictures. And so I started taking like 30 pictures from a downward angle until I found one that I liked of myself. Why? I don't know. Here's the next one. Same trip. This is my campaign photo. Hashtag Lytle 2020. I'll be looking for your vote. If you need me to kiss a baby or shake a hand, I am there for you. Notice I made sure that I wrapped the scarf around my neck so you couldn't see any folds of fat. I made sure that I did the squint, the smize. You guys are going to be saying smize by the end of this day. All right, let's see the next one. Okay, I call this the Houdat Chef. Um, Saints fan through and through. Dear friend Crystal and her mom gave this to me as a gift. And I remember being in my kitchen and going, well, I need to take a picture for Crystal and Mama. So I'm taking the picture and I'm like, nope, I don't like that one. Nope, I don't like that one. 38. 38 pictures to get that one, you guys. But no one knows that. What's the next one? Ah, hipster in training. This is my alter ego, Sequoia. He makes handcrafted pickles that he sells for $15. Um, They are organic. Uh, I've got my sepia tone filter, my pipe, my mustache and beard is nice and waxed. Like, a lot of work went into that picture, you guys. All right, what's the next one? Best hashtag in the world. Big man mini golf. Love it. I lost that day. Next picture. This is actually just a real picture. I love Wegmans, and I was so excited when they opened, so I had to take a picture. All right, what's the next one? This is when I thought I was going to move to Canada, so I needed to dress the part. Earlier, someone said, is this the bear picture? And I'm like, oh, I guess I do look like a bear. So that's me as a bear. What's the next one? Okay. We need to pause on this one real quick. 
Okay. I just finished a hike. By the way, this is going to be the album cover to my country album. Um, or my Hootie and the Blowfish cover album. I haven't decided which. I finished hiking. I'm in the car, and I'm like, oh, I should take a picture. I don't know why. Why do people need to know that I was hiking? I don't know. So I take a picture. I don't like my face. I take another picture. I don't like my face. I start changing angles. Do you know what I did? I sucked in my cheeks, bit the inside of them so it would look like my face was thinner, but that my lips weren't pursed so it didn't look like a duck face. But I couldn't do that, so I had to angle myself because if I was straight on, I would have looked like this. So instead, I angled to look like that. A lot of work. And then there's this one, the last one. I had to take this because this is the same spot that the girl took the selfie in last week. <laughs> and I, I couldn't resist. It's crazy, though. Like, this is what we do, right? We curate our lives to a point that we want people to see us in a certain way. We present ourselves or a picture of ourselves, and no one knows the actual background or the backstory or the weird positions that we're in or what's going on. We don't post pictures like this. Can we get that one up? Yeah. So this is two months ago. I texted my wife and my friend Wade. I had started working out again, and I think I texted them, I've never sweat this much in my life. I think I'm dying. Like, I didn't post that or, or this one. This is me after not sleeping. Like, I don't, like, that's not something you, you share with people. Or there's this one. That's actually a typical Wednesday, so that's not that big of a deal. What's the next one? Okay, this is... <laughs> So this is me after being sick for so long, and you know when your nose just won't stop running? That was my solution. I'll just shove the tissues up there and have them stop leaking. I don't care. But this is, like, I'm not going to go to the grocery store like that. I'm not going to go to the office like that. I'm not going to come, well, if I'm sick, I'm not going to come see you anyway. But you know what I mean? Like, we are very intentional of how we curate our lives so that people will see us exactly the way that we want them to see us. And more times than not, it's not real. We want people to think it's real. And we tell ourselves this story so much that we begin to believe it. You think of some of the most famous people in the world with some of their followers, and they have millions and millions of followers, and almost all of their posts are advertisements or their posed, curated, touched up pictures that they're selling this mirage, and so many of us buy into it. Or worse, we try to emulate it. I think a lot of us can say we've probably become fantastic followers of the meaningless. And we've lost the ability to have meaningful, intentional, and authentic friendships. One of the biggest dangers I truly believe that we face right now is our desire to be seen in a certain light. And I think it's troubling for a lot of reasons, but the biggest one is because it causes us to, to solely focus on ourselves. And when we solely focus on ourselves, that slowly becomes a habit. And when that becomes our habit, it's no wonder that people don't know how to disagree and still be respectful. It's no wonder that people don't know how to have reconciliation. It's no wonder that people don't know how to sit in the tension of knowing that everything is not always puppy dogs and butterflies. It's no wonder that it seems that sometimes adults have forgotten what it means to act like an adult. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. These verses are not Paul trying to calm people down. 
these verses are intentionally trying to remind people of the example that Christ had given. Examples like that we see in Matthew 22, when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he responds, he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Or when he washed his disciples' feet days before he was crucified. And we read in John chapter 13, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. It is humility. Or in Mark 8, when he tells us, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is living at the intersection of grace and truth because he has a foundation of humility. John chapter 1, starting in verse 14, says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And the language is this, this infinite idea that it is because of Jesus that we have unlimited grace. And that doesn't give us the right or the authority to do whatever we want. It's to recognize that we're human and there's going to be mistakes, but there is grace to cover that. It says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I truly believe that if we can develop a foundation of humility, where we count others more significant than ourselves, where we look at other people's needs more than our own, and we can live at that intersection of grace and truth, we will experience the fullness of life that we can't even comprehend. We will experience the fullness and deepness of significant friendships in ways that we can't comprehend. But it's tricky because we have to cultivate that humility. And then once, once we start to be intentional about grace and truth, that's tricky as well because oftentimes what will happen is that we'll either be all grace or all truth. And it's not either or. It's both and. Some of us are great at being gracious, open-armed no matter what. Some of us are great at sharing truth but it comes across as so harsh and so mean. There's an author, uh, Kevin DeYoung, and he wrote a ar great article on grace and truth. And I want to share with you how he breaks it down because I, I just found it super helpful. And as I read these, I want you to understand we're not all one thing or the other. We kind of hopscotch back and forth depending on the situation. So what I'm going to ask you to do as we go through this list, I want you to just identify maybe if you're the grace person or if you're the truth person in some of the situations in your life. He says, grace people are pleasant to be around. They don't cause a lot of drama. I love them already. They're easygoing. They accept us for who we are. They don't make demands. They are always welcoming. They sound awesome. But without truth, he says, grace isn't really grace. It's just being accepting and nice. People of grace without truth are so easy to spend time with, but catch this, he says, sometimes we wonder if they really like us or if they're just trying to be liked. They are tolerant, but sometimes to the point of sacrificing their own convictions. They accept us for who we are, but they never really help us become who we should be. Folks that fall in the truth group are often easy to admire. They have convictions and principles. They believe in right and wrong. They speak out against injustice, oppression, and evil, which is so important. But they're also quick to cast judgment on others. And without grace, telling the truth can become an excuse and an exercise to become belligerent. 
And I'm betting that all of us can think of times when that has been us. Truth, people without grace are loyal to their cause, but we wonder if they're really loyal to us. They make difficult decisions, but they also make life difficult for others and themselves. They inspire us with their courage, but turn us off with their intimidation. They want to change us and make us better, but they don't allow for any mistakes. He sums it up this way, if you're a grace person, you're most concerned about being loved. If you're a truth person, you're most concerned about being right, even if it means being unloved. I can't speak for you. I can speak for myself. And I know how often I will fall into one of those categories. Instead of living in a space that is both gracious and filled with truth, I will choose one or the other. And that's not the example that Jesus has set for us. And I know relationships have been hurt by that. It's not an either or, it's a both and. It's being able to have open arms and say, I'm going to be here for you. I'm going to walk with you, even at its messiest. But I'm also going to, in love, speak truth to you in a way that is life-giving, not life-taking. And the strange thing happens is that we set ourselves up against each other. If we fall into the grace category in a situation and we feel like someone is being too truthful or hurtful in their truth, we think the worst of them. And the same goes on the other side. If someone is being truthful and they feel like they're being truthful, the other doesn't think that they have any grace whatsoever. And we end up thinking the absolute worst of each other. But if we can build on that foundation of humility, if we could live at that intersection of grace and truth, to lead with grace and to love in truth, it makes such a huge difference. You guys, this last Friday, I turned a certain age. Is that right from your angle? Okay. I've been dreading it since I turned 30. (laughs) Um, And this past year, People have asked me, like, oh, how you doing? You know, you're turning the big 4-0 coming up. And I'm like, ugh, don't remind me. And I would say things like, I'm pretty sure I'm having an existential crisis, um, which is just me being super dramatic, but whatever. Like, I was really struggling with this idea of turning 40. It's been two days now. Just to let you guys know, I don't feel any different. To be determined still. Um... But I had this gnawing thing inside of me that just something, something was amiss. And there were some health issues that I needed to do address and start dealing with and, and things like that. And for a long time, I thought that the thing that was gnawing at me was I made a list of things to do before I was 40. And I didn't get all of them crossed off. And I like lists. And if everything's not crossed off, it stresses me out. So I kind of thought that was the thing. Um, and then it was in preparation for this message that I realized, nope, that's not the thing. As I prayed through the text and and through what God was really wanting to say through me today, I realized that that the knot in my stomach about turning 40 is that I actually had regrets. And that's not something that I've ever experienced before. I've always been the kind of guy that has been like, you know, um, the things that I've gone through, the choices I've made, good or bad, they've made me into who I am, and I've seen how God has used that, so I, I don't dwell on that kind of stuff. But I realized I had all these regrets, and they're relational. I realized in, the, in, in a good portion of my life that I have destroyed good relationships. And it was my fault. 
It was my fault because I set myself up above them. Or in a disagreement, instead of actually being able to listen and work through the messiness of it, I built a wall or cast blame or ignored completely until they wanted nothing to do with me because at least at that point I knew that I can still say that I was correct because I guarded myself. This last year leading into 40 has been interesting. On the one hand, I've been very humbled by looking back at my life so far and seeing what God has done and the people he's brought into my life. Um, And on the other hand, I realize like I'm not near where I need to be yet. But I think that's all of us, right? We're not where we once were, but we're not really quite yet where we need to be. In this last year, I've seen some incredible things with relationships. I've seen friends baptize friends. I've seen friends grow their family through adoption, through uh, foster care placement, through natural birth. I've seen friends get married. I've seen friends who have struggled with addiction for most of their life be able to break free and begin to get healing. I've seen people discover their giftedness. I've watched as the staff and the elders and the leaders and their spouses and families at this church have walked through some hard times and have loved God and loved people to the best of their ability, even when it didn't seem like they had anything left to give. I've seen some incredible things when it comes to relationships this year. But you know what? I've seen some really, really painful things this last year. I've watched as friends have moved away or have left. I've seen friendships ruined by such a deep-seated sense of fear, anger, and distrust that it caused ripples that affected so many other people and their faith in Christ. I've watched as men have wept over their families because they know that they've failed them. I've watched as women have wept over their husbands because their husbands have been being attacked by people that don't even know them. I've walked with friends through their struggling marriages, through their consuming doubt, through the loss of loved ones. I have watched as people in their pain, and although their pain is valid, through their pain, they thought it was best to react in such a way to smear someone else's reputation. I've watched friendships dissolve through gossip and rumors. I've watched friends across the country break relationship because of politics, theology, or cultural moments. And I see that and I get so mad and angry and frustrated because most of that pain comes from us. We do it to ourselves. We're our own worst enemies because we don't want to admit that we're wrong. We don't want to kill our pride. We dig in our heels and do whatever we can to make sure that we're still seen a certain way. We don't want to be that vulnerable to know that we messed up. So instead of leading with service and grace, we set ourselves up as judge and jury. And we lose friendships and we watch friendships dissolve. We're messy, you guys. We're people, we're messy. Relationships, they're messy. But I think with intention and work and prayer, 
I think we can experience friendships and relationships in a way that we've never experienced before. And for some of us, that starting point is actually seeking forgiveness. There are some of us in here today, we need to seek forgiveness for the way that we've been acting to people in our lives. At home, at work, in our neighborhood, our church, our community. There are some of us that need to seek forgiveness for the gossip and slander and thinking the absolute worst instead of giving someone the chance. And there are some of us that need to offer that forgiveness and grace instead of holding on to the hurt and pain and using that as a weapon against them. There are some of us that need to swallow our pride and learn to admit that we're wrong. And there are some of us in here that need to help those people with grace kill their pride because it's hard. And there are some of us in here that need to confess some stuff to Christ because in your pain, in your pain, you've caused a lot of pain in others' lives. To build friendships, we need to own our stuff, not just once, but continually. To build healthy friendships, we need to be able to lay down that foundation of humility. To build authentic, real friendships, we need to get rid of the filters we put in our lives. We need to be able to see through the filters that other people put in front of their lives and see us for who we are. Sinners that have all fallen short of the glory of God and all in need of grace. To build healthy relationships, we need to put others before ourselves. Friends, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Will you pray with me? Holy God, you are the author of grace and love and forgiveness. You are the one that shows us hope and peace. Lord, this morning I pray that your words would be clear, that your spirit would move in a mighty and active way in our lives, that you would encourage us and challenge us and convict us. God, that as a community we would be able to rely on each other and encourage each other to lay down that foundation of humility, that we can challenge each other to live in that place where truth, grace intersect and not one or the other. God, that we would be willing to get rid of our filters and see through each other's filters and see us for who we really are, your creation, in need of hope, in need of love, in need of support, in need of laughter, Lord, you are the author and a perfecter of our faith, and we entrust our lives to you. Amen. One of Jesus' greatest examples of humility was his crucifixion and his death on the cross for the sins of all those who are willing to surrender their lives to him. And every day, every Sunday, we, we celebrate that by communion. And so we're gonna, the band's going to sing, but we invite you to stand Come down your aisles, and we have communion stations and gluten-free crackers. Um, But to take this time to remember that humility, but also I'd love to challenge you that in this time of communion, that you begin to search your heart. Because I know there's not a person in this room today that probably doesn't need to offer forgiveness or seek forgiveness from someone. May a new season start in our life today 
that is built on humility.